I'm Dr. Jasmine Rani, a lecturer in international relations of the Middle East at the University of St. Andrews. I'm here in London for the second part of the podcast series on Syria. I am joined today by Dr. Christopher Phillips, a fellow Syria specialist and old colleague, who will be elaborating on the international and regional dimension of the conflict. Hello, Jasmine. I'd like to welcome you to Queen Mary University of London. It's a lovely day. We're uh, on our Mile End campus, which has the Regent's Canal running through it and uh, isn't too far from the People's Palace, which was the original part of Queen Mary University, which was set up uh, in the late Victorian era uh, to be a focal point of adult education here in East London. And it's really great uh, to have you here to be able to discuss something as important and salient as the Syria conflict. As you said, my name is Christopher Phillips. I'm a reader uh, here at Queen Mary University of London. I'm also a fellow at Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa program. And I've recently authored a book, The Battle for Syria, International Rivalry in the New Middle East. So before we get to the complexities of the conflict, it would be a good idea to go back to the beginning of the conflict, which had quite modest roots. It very much began as a domestic crisis, a one in which people were demanding reforms to the regime as opposed to regime change, and certainly were not in the early stages seeking militarization of their protests. Many of the protesters attribute the start of the uprisings with the arrest of schoolchildren in Daraa after 15 schoolboys had put graffiti on the walls calling for the downfall of the regime. The Syrian army responded by arresting the schoolboys, which then led to widespread protest in Daraa, but also in other cities such as Homs and Idlib. This then led to an escalation of protests across the country with increasing brutality of responses from the government. As the protests spread, you had a snowballing militarization in which protesters would go out onto the streets, were targeted by the security services. They would then return to attend the funerals of those who had been killed, only to be shot at again by the Syrian army. This helped to radicalize the demands of the opposition as they shifted from seeking reforms uh, from the government to potentially seeking regime change. This was compounded by the concurrent uprisings and conflict in Libya, where the rebels had taken up arms and appeared to succeed in their aims of toppling the Gaddafi regime. As Syria descended into civil war, the international dimension became more and more important. Interestingly, external powers were not really urging either side to de-escalate the conflict. On the side of the government of Bashar al-Assad, you have the Iranians and the Russians encouraging Assad to pursue a military solution, certainly not encouraging any kind of dialogue. On the other hand, you have their regional rivals, Saudi Arabia, Turkey and Qatar, who are encouraging these emergent militant groups amid the opposition to fight Assad. They're facilitating the growth of militia, they're supplying them with money, and later on they're supplying them with weapons. So you've got both sides being encouraged by external players to pursue a civil war rather than any kind of negotiation. Now obviously that feeds into seemingly the desires of the Assad regime and the more militant elements within the opposition. As the conflict gets worse, you have two external camps. 
you have those that support Assad, which is led by Iran, but also diplomatically supported by Russia. And then you have those that support the opposition, which is primarily led by Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia, but Western states also who have called on Assad to stand down because of the brutality he's meeting out on peaceful protesters, they also increasingly begin to accept that perhaps the military option should be the way forward. And they encourage the military factions within the opposition to fight. Uh, eventually, the United States provides money and weaponry to those forces. It's interesting that you mention the Libya case. In many ways, that's a curse for Syria. Because in the Libya case, when rebels fought Muammar Gaddafi, the United States led a NATO intervention against Gaddafi to protect the rebels. And this inspires some amongst the Syrian rebels that the same will happen in Syria. If they take some ground, then eventually the United States will send in its air force and support them. But of course, this is a miscalculation, partly because Libya was more difficult than people expected, partly because Syria is a more complex terrain with a larger population, and partly because of the more complex geopolitical situation. The United States isn't that keen to set up a no-fly zone in Syria and support the Syrian rebels in the same way as the Libyan rebels. The difficulty is, of course, they don't say this to the rebels, and they certainly don't say this to Assad. Everyone is under the impression that eventually the United States will intervene against Assad on behalf of the rebels. So the rebels take a very strong line, refusing to negotiate. And in response, of course, Assad also takes a very strong line and continues with his brutality. The result is that external players are effectively encouraging civil war. They're either directly supplying weapons or supplying money, or in the case of the United States, supplying hope. Chris, let's go back to the regional actors. Could you talk a bit about what their motivations were for wanting to see Assad defeated, for wanting to support the rebels? Also, the rivalry between the regional actors, which actually complicated the situation. There are three main regional sponsors of the rebels, which is Turkey, Qatar, and Saudi Arabia. They want to sponsor the rebels for different reasons. Saudi Arabia primarily is worried about its regional rival, Iran, which is a key ally of Assad. It feels that if Assad can be toppled by the rebels, then Syria will turn into a friendly state to Saudi Arabia and it'll be no longer friendly with Iran. So that'll be a geostrategic victory for Saudi Arabia. Qatar and Turkey are a little bit different. They're less worried about Iran. They're more concerned about projecting their own influence. Whilst they were allied with Assad in the past, they both believe that in the context of the Arab Spring, where autocratic governments have been overthrown, they feel that in that context, their ally, the Muslim Brotherhood, is likely to be elected in popular elections, and that will turn Syria into an even more friendly state to Turkey and Qatar than it was under Assad. The difficulty is that Turkey and Qatar, on the one hand, supporting the Muslim Brotherhood, is very different to the view of Saudi Arabia, who really oppose the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood are a threat to Saudi Arabia, at home in Saudi Arabia, and in the region at large. And so whilst all three countries agree they want to topple Assad, they don't agree on who should succeed him. Turkey and Qatar would really like the Muslim Brotherhood to take the lead. Saudi Arabia would like anyone but the Muslim Brotherhood to take the lead. 
And what this means is that they don't support the same rebel groups. They're not backing a single united front to take on Assad. Instead, they're cherry-picking different groups who align more with their own individual ideologies and they think will favour them once Assad has been toppled. And that means that what you get is fragmentation amongst the rebel groups. A lot of stuff is happening at the same time, which complicates the situation. You have these different groups emerging in Syria. I think this is the key starting point. They have different motivations. Some are secular, some are Islamist, some are quite radical Islamist of a more jihadist bent. They all largely agree on wanting to get rid of Assad, but they don't agree on what happens next. Is Syria going to remain a secular country? Is it going to be a democracy? Is it going to be a theocratic state like Iran? Is it going to be a jihadist entity like what eventually forms in ISIS and so on? These groups are simultaneously receiving different levels of support from different external backers. Sometimes those are state backers, so Turkey and Qatar might send money and weapons to groups affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood on the more moderate end of the Islamist scale. Saudi Arabia, interestingly, although it's quite theocratic in its own rule, is scared of the Muslim Brotherhood and so actually sends support to more secular groups, like former army officers that are former militia. Private donors from the Gulf are sending money secretly to more radical jihadist groups. They're getting lots of funding that way. The difficulty for the international community, both regional actors and international actors, was that they opposed Assad, but they wanted an address for the opposition. They wanted a single unified group that they could talk to and put forward as an alternative to Assad. Going back to Libya, that is what had happened in Libya. A single group, the opposition group, had formed very quickly and presented itself to the international community as the alternative government, so the international community had someone clear to support. That didn't really happen in Syria. Syria was a far more fragmented opposition from the beginning, partly because it had been repressed for so long that civil society didn't really exist. So a lot of the uh, groups that were protesting were localized. They didn't think in terms of national politics so much. And they certainly didn't coordinate at a national level. This frustrated external powers because they wanted someone specific to talk to. So the external powers, Turkey, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, but also the United States, Britain, France, the European Union, encouraged the Syrian opposition to form a single entity that could be the address for the opposition. First, they formed something called the Syrian National Council, and then that evolved into something called the Syrian Opposition Coalition. The Syrian Opposition Coalition theoretically was supported by all external opponents of Assad. In reality, though, it was dominated by the Muslim Brotherhood early on, and so therefore was particularly close to Turkey and Qatar, who were close to the Muslim Brotherhood. The rivalry that I mentioned earlier between Saudi Arabia that opposes the Muslim Brotherhood and the countries that sponsor the Muslim Brotherhood, Qatar and Turkey, led to rifts within the opposition at that higher political level. We see this particularly in 2013, where Saudi Arabia, frustrated at the dominance of the Muslim Brotherhood, and particularly the dominance of Qatar, its local Gulf rival, effectively engineers an internal coup within the Syrian opposition coalition and forces a lot of key Muslim Brotherhood members to resign and in their place, pro-Saudi Arabian figures emerge. And from that point onwards, 
the Syrian opposition coalition, is no longer primarily sponsored by Qatar, it's primarily sponsored by Saudi Arabia. What's interesting about the Syrian opposition coalition, whether they initially were made up of Muslim Brotherhood members or Saudi-sponsored members, is a majority of them were exiled. They had actually been political exiles from the 80s and the 90s. Could you talk about the disconnect between the political wing and in particular the military wing? Because I think there we start to see the roots of the lack of legitimacy amongst the political wing and increased legitimacy amongst the military opponents as well as the rise of ISIS. From the very beginning, the Syrian Opposition Coalition and its predecessor, the Syrian National Council, has two major problems. Firstly, is this question of disconnect with people on the ground. It has been formed not necessarily because there was a demand for it from inside Syria, but because there was a demand for it outside Syria amongst the international community and the regional opponents of Assad. They wanted someone to talk to, someone to sponsor, to emerge as an alternative government to Assad. So they have a job to try to persuade people inside Syria that are protesting and dying at the hands of Assad's army that they are a legitimate representative of their interest. And one of the reasons they struggle to do this is related to their second problem, which is by this point, the civil war is raging and rebel fighting groups are dominating the position on the ground. They have no connection with the Syrian opposition coalition. People inside Syria view members of the Free Syrian Army and other rebel militia as their protectors and the people that are going to save them from Assad. If there's no relationship or no strong relationship between these rebel fighters and the Syrian opposition coalition, how can the Syrian opposition coalition realistically be seen as an alternative government? There are various attempts made by external states, particularly the United States, but also Qatar, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, to try to forge a closer link between the opposition coalition and the rebel fighters on the ground. But they largely fail. The coalition is led by exiles who have been out of Syria for many decades and don't really seem to reflect the people who are doing the fighting. On top of that, the fighters are saying, who are you? Why should we pay attention to you? There is a further complication, which is that as time goes by, partly because of the level of support coming from the outside, some by private donors and some by state governments, and also because of a general radicalization amongst people that are fighting and dying in a war, you see an increased radical shift amongst the fighting rebels. And whilst there are still some secular forces and some mild Islamists aligned with the Free Syrian Army, increasingly you get groups who reject anything other than a quite radical Islamist or even jihadist government. Groups like Al-Qaeda, groups like ISIS start to emerge amongst the rebel forces. And when they start to emerge, the sponsors of the coalition are very uncomfortable with the idea of linking this coalition group, this political coalition, with those radical jihadist fighters. And the last thing they want is to be sending money and weapons to these radical Islamists. So what you get is the difficulty of the external sponsors, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the United States, really trying to get the coalition to link up with a select group of moderate rebel fighters at the very time when the most successful best armed fighters are radical Islamists and jihadists. So you have from the United States a conditionality of support 
a disconnect with what's happening on the ground. And in the meantime, you also have a shift in public opinion inside the United States as well, where increasingly the American public are becoming war-weary and war-weary. They've seen the consequences of the Iraq war, the multitude of deaths amongst U.S. personnel, the cost of the Iraq war was estimated to be $3 trillion. And this contributed to the recession in the United States. And of course, Obama came to power for his first term and second term, promising an increased withdrawal from the Middle East, especially after the unpopularity of the policies of the previous Bush administration. All of that came together to produce a lack of enthusiasm for further intervention or support for the rebels in Syria. One of the big problems as well was the mixed messages going to the United States regional allies. I've spoken to rebel fighters who said that the Turkish government and the Qatari government were saying to them that the US would eventually intervene directly in Syria like they did in Libya. They were encouraging them to take up arms, to take territory from Assad, because rather like happened in Libya when the rebels captured Benghazi, that would be a tipping point that would prompt the United States to intervene. This comes to a head over the issue of chemical weapons in 2013. Barack Obama had said in 2012 that if Assad dared to use his extensive arsenal of chemical weapons in the conflict, then that would represent a red line for Obama. Many people inside the United States and uh, in Syria and the regional players believed that this red line therefore meant military action. If Assad could be proved to use chemical weapons, then that would be the prompt for the United States to directly intervene as they had in Libya. Around 2012, early 2013, there were numerous reports of Assad having actually used chemical weapons against the rebels. And there was a desperate scramble by rebel forces and by their allies in places like Turkey and Saudi Arabia and Qatar and even the United Kingdom and France to prove that Assad had actually used chemical weapons. In August 2013, a massive chemical weapons attack occurred in Ghouta, which is a suburb of Damascus, at the very moment when a team of chemical weapons inspectors from the UN were in the Syrian capital. At this point, it was widely expected that Obama would enforce his red line, and indeed, he even moved destroyers into the eastern Mediterranean ready to strike against Assad. This was the moment that uh, the rebels had been hoping for. They thought, finally, the United States is going to intervene on our behalf and attack Assad in the way they attacked Gaddafi in Libya. But to everyone's surprise, after there had been a vote in the British Parliament not to get involved in such a strike against Assad, Obama himself instead decided to accept Russian mediation to get the chemical weapons out of Syria peacefully and called off the military strike. Certainly, we can argue that the lack of intervention from the United States led to a huge loss of credibility for the Obama administration, but also for the United States' superpower status. It certainly meant there was a huge dip in popularity for Obama in the Middle East. However, 
we can see that there were certain factors that forced Obama's hand and that he wasn't entirely in control of the decision that he took. Obama prided himself on being a president that consulted with his experts in the administration. That meant that he paid attention to the expertise coming from the State Department as well as the Department of Defense. Those two departments were at complete loggerheads in terms of the policy that they should pursue for Syria. The State Department, first under Hillary Clinton, and less stridently so under Secretary of State John Kerry, advocated a form of intervention, whether it was via arming the rebels or through limited strikes to warn Assad. The Department of Defense, however, argued against any form of military intervention because they didn't want to see a conflagration of conflict, not just within Syria, but within the region itself. And they were in close consultation with their partners in, for example, Israel. So to some extent, Obama was caught in a dilemma between these different sources of advice. But Obama also had set himself up as being a cautious pragmatist. So in many ways, you could argue that Obama was seeking to fulfill the mandate that he had come to power with. For Obama, what really mattered was getting rid of chemical weapons. He had the Pentagon draw up plans in 2012 as to what would be the cost of going in to Syria militarily to take the chemical weapons out by force. And it was estimated to cost tens of thousands of troops. The Russian deal that was proposed saw Assad disarm his chemical arsenal peacefully and the vast majority of chemical weapons were then removed from Syria. So as far as Obama was concerned, this was worth the cost of losing a little bit of prestige. He was able to remove the chemical weapons from Syria without a shot being fired. It also allowed Obama at the end of that term in office to say, actually, we achieved something. We got Syria to give up their chemical weapons, which was much more than any previous administration had managed to do. The difficulty is, of course, that in 2017, Assad used chemical weapons again against rebel positions in northern Syria. This was seen as a damnation on Obama, proof that he had been duped by Assad, who said he'd given up all his chemical weapons, but actually had secretly retained some. The new president, Donald Trump, responded violently against Assad striking uh, an airbase in central Syria. Trump pushed himself forward as daring to do what Obama couldn't do. But interestingly, both what Trump did and what Obama was proposing to do was a lot short of what the rebels thought the United States was going to do. No one in the US at any point was talking about implementing a no-fly zone. No one was talking about intervening to topple the regime of Assad. Both Obama and then later Trump were proposing to punish Assad for using chemical weapons, not to intervene directly into the Syrian civil war. Of course, what Obama's decision in 2013 also did was bring another player into the conflict waiting by the sidelines, which was Russia. So Russia had been a long-standing ally of Syria going back to the Cold War. The only Russian naval base in the Mediterranean, in fact the only military base outside of the former Soviet Union that belongs to Russia, was in the Syrian port city of Tartus. From the very beginning of the conflict, Russia supported Assad. It defended Assad at the United Nations. There were various attempts by the United States, by its allies, by regional players to condemn Assad at the United Nations Security Council, and all of those attempts were vetoed by Russia. 
But Russia's moves were primarily diplomatic and economic. They provided uh, Assad with weapons, they kept selling him weapons, and they provided him with diplomatic cover. The main military support for the Assad regime was initially Iran. Iran sent some of its own generals over to direct Assad's forces against the rebels. It encouraged its Lebanese ally, Hezbollah, to send over some of its fighters to stand by Assad. And later on, it sent over Shia militia from Iraq, later on Afghanistan as well, and even Pakistan, to fight on Assad's behalf. The civil war had begun to shift against Assad. It wasn't that the rebels were going to win, but they had a bit more success than in previous years, capturing the city of Idlib, for example, in early 2015. And the reports coming to Moscow was that Assad might actually collapse. His long-standing ally, the Iranians, actually went to Moscow and invited them to intervene to help save Assad. The Russians were persuaded by this argument and in September 2015 surprised the world by sending their air force directly into Syria to fight on Assad's behalf. This was arguably the turning point in the civil war because whilst Russia claimed that it was intervening to defeat ISIS, actually it spent most of its efforts targeting rebel positions, culminating in the recapture of the eastern half of the second city, Aleppo, in the end of 2016. At this point, it became quite clear that the civil war, the war between the rebels and Assad, had ultimately been decided. Rebel pockets remained, but there was not really any question anymore of Assad being toppled. There's a wonderful episode just before the Russian intervention in Syria, the day before, the military attaché of the Russian embassy in Baghdad walks into the American embassy in Baghdad and says very bluntly, we move into Syria at midnight, stay out of the way. So why is Russia so keen to intervene in Syria? Surely it's not just because of this long-standing alliance with the Assad regime going back to half of the Assad's era. Well, it's not just because of this alliance. In fact, there are very important Russian interests at play in Central Asia, and particularly over the sovereignty of Ukraine. Moscow believes that the Crimea in Ukraine should be a part of Russian territory. Russia moved its troops into Ukraine in February of 2014 and annexed Crimea. This led to sanctions being applied by the EU and the United States against Russia. So for the Russians, Syria provided the perfect opportunity for them to gain some leverage over the West when it came to the issue of Ukraine. Of course, another concern for Russia was that there were a lot of Russian speakers already in Syria fighting for ISIS. Whilst Russia's primary concern was to keep Assad in power and attack the rebels because they were the greatest threat to Assad, they were also willing and ready to attack ISIS as well. One of the reasons was they wanted to kill the Russian ISIS fighters to stop them from coming back and stirring up trouble in Russia. Don't forget, Russia has got roughly 13% of its population are Muslim, and they have had historical difficulties, especially around the North Caucasus region, with Islamist and jihadist fighters. And certainly Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia's viewpoint, was if we can deal with this problem in Syria, that's better than waiting for those people to return home and attack us in Russia. 
ISIS had attracted a huge number of foreign fighters, but also Syrian fighters as well. They broke out of Iraq in 2013, crossing into Syria, capturing territory and declaring that they were the new caliphate. Most people, especially Western leaders such as Barack Obama, didn't take them seriously. Barack Obama mocked them, suggesting they were rather like university basketball players, pretending that they were professionals. Yet Obama got quite the shock in 2014 when the so-called amateurs in ISIS captured Iraq's third city, Mosul, from under the noses of America's ally, the Iraqi military. This is significant because unlike in 2013, when Obama refused to directly intervene against Assad, Obama was shocked by events in Iraq and decided to intervene in both Iraq and Syria not against Assad, but against ISIS. This provoked a lot of criticism because people said, well, you're attacking ISIS from a counter-terrorism perspective, but not attacking Assad when he uses chemical weapons against his own people. In Iraq, they made a close reliance with both the Iraqi army and also Iraqi Kurdish forces in the Kurdistan regional government. The problem in Syria was they didn't have any reliable allies to work with. They couldn't ally with Assad, who they had declared should stand down. At the same time, some of these ISIS fighters had actually come from former rebel militias who had radicalized. So they didn't really see the rebels as a viable anti-ISIS force on the ground. As you said earlier, Jasmine, there was a degree of war weariness in the United States, so they couldn't exactly send United States troops in to clear out the caliphate. So in the end, they decided to ally with a fourth group inside Syria, which is Syria's Kurds. But now, as you mentioned, when we bring the Kurdish factor in, it actually complicates the alliance between the Turks and the United States and has huge ramifications for the conflict on the ground. And herein lies the controversy. As far as Turkey is concerned, the Syrian Kurds, the PYD, and their militia, the YPG, the People's Protection Units, are an extension of the terrorist PKK, which is the Kurdistan Workers' Party a Turkish-Kurdish militant organization with quite a radical leftist ideology that want independence for all Kurds, but specifically the Kurds that live in Turkey. And for this reason, the Turkish government has opposed them for decades. Therefore, they see all of those Kurdish-Syrian militant groups as terrorists. So their close ally, the United States, their NATO ally, is sending weapons and money and training to a terrorist group that they have fought a civil war with since the 1980s. The United States alliance with the Syrian Kurds is very successful. And by 2017, they have pushed ISIS out of the vast majority of eastern Syria. And actually, the Iraqi army has pushed them out of most of Iraq as well. The problem is that this now means there's a huge swathe of eastern Syria all along the Turkish border that was once controlled by ISIS, but is now controlled by Turkey's mortal enemy, the YPG, PYD, PKK terrorists. 
In 2016, Turkey directly invades Syria for the first time. They launched something called Operation Euphrates Shield. Ostensibly, this is about ISIS. They attack ISIS positions directly over the border in northern Syria. But the real reason is because the Kurds have been very successful and they're worried that if they don't take this position, then the Kurds will capture that land from ISIS, which will allow the Kurds to dominate the entire stretch of the Turkish-Syrian border. For Turkey, that would mean that a terrorist organization, as bad as ISIS as far as they're concerned, controls the entire Syrian-Turkish border region. So they sponsor a group of Syrian rebels, uh, remnants from the Free Syrian Army that have been relatively unsuccessful against Assad. They have been trained and armed by Turkey and alongside Turkish troops and Turkish tanks move into a segment of northern Syria and capture it and hold it, separating two pockets of Kurds. The vast majority of Kurdish territory is off to the east, supported by the United States and its air force, and a small pocket around Efrin, a small town near Aleppo, is left controlled by the Kurds, but out on its own. And importantly, unlike those areas to the east, there is no United States presence there. Of course, the United States' support for the Kurds alienates them from their NATO ally, Turkey, and it's actually through that that we can understand the rapprochement between Turkey and Russia in 2016, where you have the Astana talks in Kazakhstan between the opposition forces and between Turkey, but no presence from the United States. The question of the Kurds and Turkey's concern about the Kurds makes Turkey effectively change sides in the Syrian conflict. It has looked to the United States since 2011 to come in to support its goals of toppling Assad, supporting its allies, the rebels. As we've said, though, the United States greatly disappoints Turkey, not only in not toppling Assad through military force, but then backing its sworn enemy, the Kurds, in its fight against ISIS. When Russia intervenes in 2015, Turkey recognizes that its position is no longer tenable. Its allies, the rebels, are not going to beat Assad. And in all likelihood, if things continue as they are, its enemies, the Kurds, are gonna have a permanent state on their border. So they decide to grow closer to the Russians. In 2016, they cut a deal. The deal is this, if Russia opens up Syrian airspace and allows Turkey to launch Operation Euphrates Shield against ISIS but separating the Kurds, then Turkey, in response, will cut its support for the rebels inside eastern Aleppo. This deal allows Turkey to invade parts of Syria, keep the Kurds separated, and it allows Russia and their allies, Assad and Iran, Turkey's supposed enemy, to recapture the whole of Syria's second city, Aleppo. This really comes to a head in January 2018, when Turkey decides to take out that final western pocket of Kurdish resistance in Afrin. They launch Operation Olive Branch, specifically aimed at crushing the PYD YPG fighters. This is important because it's the first time that Turkey has actually directly fought the United States ally. In 2016, they were fighting ISIS, in 2018, that changes, and they are attacking and killing Kurdish forces. And importantly, so are their Syrian allies. As in 2016, they have used 
members of the Free Syrian Army who have been trained and armed by Turkey to be their troops on the ground alongside Turkish forces to attack the Kurds. So you have rebel Syrians fighting other rebel Syrians. Of course, Operation Olive Branch could not have happened without the acquiescence of the Russians. As in 2016, Russia allows Turkey to enter northern Syria. They open up the airspace and don't attack back. This shows the level of cooperation we now have between Turkey and Russia, that effectively Turkey is going into Syria with Russian approval. After all this, what then happens to the original parties in this conflict? The opposition on one side and the regime. The opposition, especially in losing the support of its primary ally, the Turks, is really cut adrift and never really had solid support from the United States to begin with. So we see them increasingly fragmented and disillusioned and marginalised from the political and the military process. On the other hand, the regime has seen its primary allies, Russia and Iran, gaining ascendancy, dictating the political process as well. And of course, a lot of the regime's rhetoric at the start of the conflict has actually materialised that the conflict was being instigated by the intervention of foreign powers. You're quite right, Jasmine. And, and now we're in a position in 2018 where the Syrian civil war has effectively been outsourced and external actors are now calling the shots. We have this vast swathe of eastern Syria, which is nominally controlled by Syrian Kurdish forces, but at the behest of the United States, whose air force dominate the skies. And the question is whether or not they're going to stay there for a long time, whether or not they might extend further attacking Assad, attacking Assad's allies Iran, and so on, whether or not they'll remain to try to fight the remnants of ISIS, whether or not they'll withdraw. It's unknown, but that's one component. In the extreme north, we have Turkey directly occupying parts of northern Syria. They have rebel allies there on the ground, but ultimately they are beholden to Ankara, and Ankara is calling the shots. And then in the rest of Syria, along the western cities, all the way down to Damascus, up to Aleppo, we have the regime still in power, but really reliant on Russia and Iran. And whilst Assad is quite canny and wily and is able to play these two allies off against one another, ultimately he does depend on them for power. There's also another dimension, which is Israel, which we've barely mentioned in this. And actually it's interesting because Israel has not played a dominant role in the Syria conflict. In many ways for Israel, a civil war in Syria was not a bad thing. It tied up its long-standing enemy, Syria, in a conflict. But now that war seems to be winding down to an extent, and the question of Assad's future seems to have been relatively resolved. Israel is concerned, because to stay in power, Assad has relied on Iran and relied on Hezbollah. And now those two sworn enemies of Israel have a base not only in Lebanon, which they've always had, but also now in Syria. Israel is concerned that they will use that base to attack Israel. Recently, we've seen the first major clashes between Israeli and Iranian forces inside Syria. And there are some real concerns that we could see a new Israel-Hezbollah, or even a new Israel-Hezbollah-Syria-Iran war emerging in southern Syria as a consequence, the fallout 
of that internationalization of Syria's civil war. Well, I think that brings us to the end of today's discussion. Chris, my profound thanks for bringing so much insight and expertise into the discussion. It's been great to talk about Syria with you again. Thanks very much. Absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for coming to Queen Mary.